Good morning, everybody. Hello to all my friends online. I miss you guys. I'm so glad you're here this morning online and in the room. If we haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet, my name is Hunter. I was an intern here at Grace Point while I was finishing up my MDiv earlier this year, and now I'm back as a guest teacher and preacher, and I am so glad to get to be with y'all this morning. I do have to do a little shameless plug, so I've gotten the honor of getting to lead what we're calling Her, A Feminist Approach to Scripture, which is an amazing, radical feminist Bible study. Radical because it's feminist. And we've had two of three meetings so far, and they've been so fun, so enlightening to me personally. I've learned a lot. And so I just want you to know that if you want to be there for our third, we're meeting November 10th, and you are more than welcome. So just had to start it off with a little shameless plug this morning. So today we are going to be continuing our series around Naked Spirituality, which is a book written by Brian McLaren, who is a good friend to Grace Point. In this book, McLaren outlines four different movements of the spiritual life or four different seasons. And if you've been around for the last month or so, you've heard about them. And within these four different seasons of a spiritual life, McLaren outlines 12 different practices that help us as we endeavor to live this life with God. Now, if you're anything like me, when I just said the phrase, live this life with God, your skin might have gotten like a little bit crawly. You might feel a little bit squirmy in your seat. Maybe there was a time in your life when you would have heard that phrase from the pulpit, from the bar stool, and you would have known exactly what that meant, or you would have thought that you did. And now, for whatever reason, whatever journey you've walked through, this idea of living life with God seems pretty murky and pretty confusing. So I just want to say, if that's you this morning, if these words like seasons and spiritual practices and life with God makes you feel a little squirmy, just know I'm right there with you and you are in good company and all of your skepticism and cynicism and doubt, whatever you're bringing into this space this morning, it is so, so welcomed here. If it wasn't, I would have to leave. So it is so, so welcomed here. Just by way of a little recap, the first season that McLaren outlines in this amazing book is that of spring, and he calls it simplicity, where you're getting to know yourself as a spiritual being, connecting with that part of yourself. You're getting to know God, and everything feels new and exciting. Intimacy with God feels basically second nature, and feeling your belovedness and actually believing it comes pretty naturally. McLaren, as I said, calls this season simplicity. And you think when you're in it, life will always be this good. But then simplicity begins to give way to complexity. The summer of the spiritual life where you feel yourself filled with vigor and energy attempting to codify and understand every aspect of this God that you claim to follow. 
In the summer season, you may spend your energy memorizing Bible stories and what they mean and thinking them through. You might be spending all your free time leading Bible studies and small groups and Wednesday night service, all the things. You might find yourself reading biblical commentaries and or books written by people that your pastors love and you are working and you're energized and you're maturing in a way that's giving you satisfying answers. And the depth of this life of faith seem to be limitless. But as in nature, summer slowly and begrudgingly, at least here in Tennessee, begins to give way to autumn. Leaves change, focus shifts inward as we grab our cozy sweaters out of the closet and our favorite mugs from the cupboard. The days begin to get shorter and the darkness longer. In this spiritual fall that McLaren describes, darkness is a central theme. The kind of darkness where you wonder if the sun will ever rise again the kind of darkness where everything that used to be familiar and comforting is made strange and unsettling, submerged in what seems to be an endless night. McLaren calls this season perplexity, a time where you notice how all the hard work of summer, that codifying and systematizing of the divine, actually made you more cynical than reverent. You're skeptical if all of your searching for answers has produced anything that's actually worth finding. The fall of the soul emerges as you've thought so critically about what you believe and what you say and what you hear in church and what you sing in church and what you read in your Bible. And all this critical thinking has led you to be so cynical and so skeptical that you find yourself skeptical of your own skepticism and cynical of your own cynicism. When McLaren said that, I was like, he's been watching me. He knows. He knows where we're at. We're we're reaching the end here because we're cynical of our very selves. And maybe as you're in this moment where you're cynical of your very self, you think it might just be easier to throw in the towel on this whole life with God thing. And honestly, it might just be what you want to do anyway. In the fall of the soul, you think maybe that springtime nearness of God was actually just in your head. Maybe that summertime certainty that you felt was just your own neuroses protecting you from life's unanswerable questions. In this autumn of the soul, you find yourself asking, when? When is this going to be over? When is the darkness going to give way to light? This is the first question and the first practice of autumn that we are going to explore today. I have to tell you guys, it does feel comically well-timed. God, whomever she is, she has a sense of humor. And if she doesn't, I'm out. So I have to believe that she has a sense of humor and that it's comically well-timed because as we're talking about the emergence of fall in the spiritual life, it feels like maybe, just maybe, fall has finally won the arm wrestling match with summer here in Nashville. I don't know. I'm sweating in this blazer, so maybe not. Maybe it's still summer. Can't be sure. And although just by looking at me, you might guess that I love fall, which I do, like my fellow boot-loving, sweater-wearing, pumpkin-spice-drinking girlies, 
However, <laughs> I do have a little secret. So I harbor actually kind of a deep resentment towards fall. If I had it my way, and this is really going to unsettle some of you, but if I had it my way, it would be summertime all year round. Now hear me out, hear me out. There's some caveats to that. I get it, I hear the groans. But actually when I graduated from Belmont back in the day, I fled to Southern California and I was like, this is it. This is the land of endless summer. Here, I will never feel sad again. But turns out, sadness reaches you in Southern California and so does daylight savings, which are basically synonyms if you're me. But daylight savings and sadness found me in Southern California. And although it was a heck of a lot warmer in February there than it is in February here, it was by no means summer. And not only do I want it to be summertime outside all year round, I feel that it is next to necessary that it's summertime on the inside all year round. I'm a person who has been described as an exclamation mark embodied, and I love, as you can probably guess, I love the energy of summer. I love that the sun doesn't set until 9 p.m., that people want to go out and do things and walk and hike and drink margaritas on the patio. I love that everything is green and filled with life. And here's my caveat, I do hate mosquitoes, and the humidity gets a little overbearing, but it feels like a small price to pay for three months of what to me feels like a never-ending Saturday. However, I do come to October and I delight in the changing leaves and the chance to wear a flannel. And though the literal season of fall can be so fun with pumpkin spice and the pumpkins and the hayrides and the Halloween and the spooky movies, not for me, but if that's your thing, it's very exciting. And it can be so fun to engage in this fall season when it finally pushes summer out of the way. However, the spiritual season of fall is usually described as anything but fun. McLaren puts it this way. He says, I remember the first time I entered the spiritual autumn of perplexity. I was working the program, praying, reading my Bible, experiencing fellowship, witnessing my faith, and leading others to Christ. But then the program stopped working. It wasn't just that I no longer felt the warm summer breezes and that I'd grown accustomed to. I had experienced downtimes, dry times, flat times before when God's present wasn't as present or perceivable to my soul. But this time it was different because day after day, week after week, I felt the cold, damp, gray absence of God. Man, sounds like a good time, right? Sign me up for some fall. That's a cold, damp absence? Yeah, I'm there. Let's do it. No, none of us go into autumn willingly. Or if you're like me, you don't even usually realize that it's happening. I've experienced this kind of spiritual fall in my life in two ways that just so happen to overlap, which can be super fun. The first is on more than one occasion experiencing clinical depression. And the second was when I was in seminary. Yes, seminary, where you go to master divinity, is where I felt the overwhelming absence of God more than anywhere else in my entire life. When I was going to seminary, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, full of hope and love of the Bible, I showed up and people kept saying, oh my gosh, you're going to seminary, that's great. We like to call it cemetery, where faith goes to die. (laughs) And I would say... Thank you so much, strange man in the airport. That's, yeah, can't wait. I gotta 
I'm moving to Atlanta. It's too late. I'm going. I'm going to seminary. It's too late. But it turns out the joke's on me and the rest of us that go to seminary because it's actually a little bit accurate. It's pretty hard to describe what is so hard about seminary. I honestly haven't really tried to because I'm just kind of trying to repress it more or less. But here's, here's an example. So you take an already grueling academic endeavor like grad school, anyone who's gone, you know, if you know, you know. And then you throw on top of it this like unraveling and extreme examination of everything you've ever believed or identified with or found spiritual comfort in. And when you put those things together, it makes for like a really hard three years. But then I got the fun added variable of a never ending global pandemic, unexpected enrollment in Zoom University and clinical anxiety and depression. So it did in fact lead to my own personal spiritual autumn, to put it mildly. There came a point in seminary, I remember this so clearly, I remember where I was sitting and I looked around metaphorically, so to say, at myself and all the things that I had learned and all the things that I had unlearned. And I took note of the critical nature with which I'd come to see God and the church and the Bible. And I realized in this moment of radical honesty that I was a Christian for no other reason than I decided to be in that moment. And if you had caught me at another moment, it might've been a different answer. That's where I was at. And yet I was working in a church and I was teaching Sunday school and I was leading liturgy and I was giving sermons and writing papers about this understanding of God and a faith tradition that I wasn't totally sure could be redeemed. I lived day in and day out with a genuine sense of existential dread, thinking these repetitive thoughts like what? in the actual world is this all for? What if I've devoted my entire life to something that isn't even real? Or worse, what if this God I claim to love and serve actually is real, but isn't actually worth following and worshiping? That is the kind of hard that I lived through in seminary. And that is the kind of hard season that I read reflected in McLaren's book when he describes perplexity and the practice of when. When asks, how long, God? How long will this dry season last? When will this cold emptiness end? When, when? These are the questions of perplexity. And I am under no false pretense that you have to go to seminary or something like it to experience this kind of spiritual autumn. I would wager anyone who's had a brush with depression or loss of a loved one or loss of a job or loss of a community or a faith that used to work for you, or if you've ever experienced illness or unemployment or homelessness, or you've sat and watched the news for the thousandth night in the row, seeing how the world is burning, being able to do little to stop it, I would wager that you've experienced perplexity. You've experienced spiritual autumn. You have asked yourself, when, when is this gonna change? When is this horrible season feeling loss, disaster gonna be over? The asking of this question is a natural inclination when you're faced with this kind of darkness and loss and existential dread. 
So I do not posit this question lightly because for me, it's not just a question, it's a memory of asking in my deepest, darkest moments. I've asked when to God when I've literally cried myself to sleep. I've asked when to God when I wake up riddled with anxiety. I've asked when to my therapist over and over. When is this gonna be over? When's it gonna change? When is laughter gonna come easily? When is summer coming back? I know in this community that I'm not alone in this. I know this because we're a group of human people, and it turns out if you live long enough, you're going to run into spiritual autumn. I hold space this morning for our pain, for mine and for yours. The pain, that's a memory, and the pain, that is present. So as we talk about when as a spiritual practice this morning, recognize that I'm holding this space for the people who are like me, for whom this question is not just a nice spiritual idea, but it's a guttural cry. It's all you know what to say. And though this cry often comes out of a place of despair, of longing for a day just a fraction easier than the ones you've been living, what's ironic is the flip side of this question is hope. And I don't mean the Hallmark card, Hobby Lobby, put it on a bumper sticker, silver linings hope. I don't need any more of that. Thank you so much. No, I mean the gritty, sneaky, resilient, couldn't squash it if you tried hope. Because when we cry out the question when, it means by definition, we expect to have a day where it's not like this. There's a hope that this pain is temporary. There's a hope that somebody is listening. There's an expectation that life won't always be this hard. It's an affirmation that every season has an ending, even the horrible ones. And when I'm in those dark spiritual autumns or dark depressive episodes, it's really nice to be reminded that this pain is temporary. But what would be even nicer is if someone could give me a timeline for when it was going to be over. I'm like, yeah, 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 it's over, but it's happening now. And like, it doesn't feel good. And I can't think about anything else. And all I want to do is sleep. So like, Jane, the therapist, when's it going to be over? She doesn't know. That's the hard part. Not your therapist, not your best friend, not your mom. Nobody actually can answer this question. And that sucks. And no one can tell you with any attempt at accuracy when the hard, sucky, damp darkness of your personal autumn will end because they just don't know. And still, we ask this question with no answer because the spiritual practice is in the asking. We ask even when God herself, who may just be the only person who could give us an answer, seems to be resoundly quiet on the matter. We ask because when we verbalize our pain through the question, when, we open up just the tiniest little crack for that sneaky, stubborn, gritty hope to sneak in. We ask this question, when, even though it has no answer, and we do so knowing we are in great company of our spiritual ancestors when we do so. In the midst of my own spiritual autumn, one of them, I was introduced to the Psalms of Lament in my Old Testament class. They'd been hiding in this book all along, but I never really knew what to do with them, so I just kind of skipped over it and got to the Psalms. They were like, God, we love you, you're the best. Um, And I missed the ones that were really sad. And let me tell you, nothing really describes the seminary experience more accurately than 
when you're sitting in a class with literally all of your first year colleagues and your professor's like, so the songs of lament, everything's bad. They want to die. And also they're mad at God and everyone just exhales. They're like, finally, someone who gets it. Give me the Psalms of lament, somebody who gets it. It gave us language for this pain and darkness that we were experiencing, and that's a gift. And these Psalms of lament are beautiful little gifts of sadness and honesty in the Hebrew Bible. They were poems that were both sung together and recited alone. And my favorite part, a hallmark part of the Psalms of Lament is that they let God have it. These authors pull no punches. There is not a cliche in the bunch. There's no niceties. Not only do they ask when, when is this gonna be over? They say, when God, and also I'm pretty sure this is your fault. I'm pretty sure you said you were gonna care for me and like take care of us and like keep us in the land. But I can't say I feel all that cared for. I'm mad about it and I'm mad at you. There's a comfortability in the, with pain in these Psalms of lament that I personally need in order to live any kind of authentic life as a person in general, but also any kind of authentic life of faith in particular. In our modern American Christian context, it feels a little taboo and a little unprofessional, maybe a little unhinged to rail against God in the way that these Psalms do. But I am grateful that our spiritual ancestors had no such sense of spiritual decorum and niceties. In their honesty, they give us the language we need to bear the hardship of a spiritual autumn. Not only do they offer an example of how to ask this question of when, but they give us insight into who to ask it to. First, to ourselves, being honest in our own consciousness that we are in autumn and that year-long summer sadly does not exist. And then they ask it to God, knowing God can take it, I guess they believe that, believing God can take it, cares to hear us cry and wail. And then to community, trusting that there is in fact a point to asking a question with no answer if you do so in a safe that is space, in a space that is safe and supportive to hold your sadness and in a space with people who will hold on to the tiny sliver of hope when it's too much for you to hold yourself. So I'm gonna give us an example of these Psalms of Lament. We're gonna look at Psalm 42, which is an incredible example. And as I read this, I want you to listen for the question of when, and I want you to listen to the emotions that the author is communicating and listen for the tone that they use with God. All right, Psalm 42, here we go. Brought my physical Bible. It's the only, it's a study Bible, but it works. Okay, Psalm 42. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night while people say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I went with the throng and led them in the processions of the house of God with glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disquieted within me, hope in God? And I shall again appraise her, my help and my God. 
My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Mount Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the thunder of your cataracts. All your waves and your billows have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands her steadfast love, and at night, her song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I walk mournfully because the enemy oppresses me? As with a deadly wound in my body, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disquieted within me? Hope in God, and I shall again praise her, my help and my God. In this psalm, I hear brutal honesty. I hear a longing for God and a confusion as to why God's present seems so far away when it used to be so, so near. I hear echoed throughout this question of how long is this hardship gonna go on? I hear an honest despair in the absence of God and that though God promised to be with them, always God seems to be anywhere but nearby. I hear a deep anguish on a soul level and still, Still, there is a tiny thread of hope, a glimmer of gritty, stubborn hope that somehow, though we don't know how, this immense pain will not last forever. Scholars have been able to determine the context of this particular psalm, and it really helps to kind of paint in this picture of why and how this anguish came to be. We think that the psalm was written during the period of exile, when the ancient Israelites were in and were living their own personal nightmare, their own personal worst case scenario. Because you see, not only did exile mean that their land had been conquered and their autonomy taken away, not only did exile mean that many of the Israelites were forced to leave the only home and land they had ever known, which are both horrific and traumatic in their own right, But you see, exile also meant that they left their God behind, or maybe God left them, they're not sure. Because in the ancient world, when nations were battling, it wasn't just a power power struggle between human might and wit and ingenuity. It was a power struggle between the divines, between my God of my nation and your God of your nation. And when your nations conquered, that means your God was also conquered. They couldn't stand up to the test. When push came to shove, they didn't protect you like you thought that they would. So the stakes were pretty high and the Israelites are living in the wake of being conquered and they're feeling the spiritual anguish along with the physical anguish of being kicked out of their land. Because to them, their relationship with God was so tied to the land. The God of their ancestors had promised them this land. It was where they believed that God dwelled in a particular way. It was how they knew to interact with God and their community to be in community with the very divine. And they didn't have a to-go bag for that. They couldn't just pack up God in their minds and take God with them. Being exiled from their, man, from their land meant leaving God behind. 
And so the psalmist here is lamenting this loss of connection with God on a collective level, this spiritual anguish in the midst of physical relocation and grief. When faced with these impossible circumstances, with their worst case scenario, the psalmist cries out to God and they're brutally honest. They wanna know where is God in all of this? Why is it not working out as we thought that God had promised? And when will this living nightmare be over? And even in the midst of these questions, I sense somehow a trust that God can take it, that God listens to their honesty, a belief that God can handle it, that God will not shy away from their pain or judge them, that God isn't trying to point out a silver lining or insinuate that this is somehow a test that their community didn't pass. Though the psalmist questions God's integrity and presence and promises, they still cry out to God. And like I said, in this question of when, in this act of crying out, there's a sliver of trust that God is listening that God still cares, that somehow hope sneaks in despite all odds. And one day, when, we don't know, it won't be this bad. When McLaren talks about when as a practice, I think it's this. I think it's what we just read, this practice of being honest, of giving voice to our pain, of making God listen to it, of not suffering silently and alone. It is the practice of trust that God is listening, even if I'm mad about it, which I am, that love is still in the midst of this autumn somehow, some way. This practice of crying out when is an acceptance that for unexplainable reasons, life is like this. We have spiritual autumns. Every day is not summer despite our greatest efforts. And somehow God Love is still there. When God's silence seems to be deafening, we cry out into the void and in so doing so offer an assertion, no matter how frail, of hope and of trust. A crucial element of the Psalms of lament and of this practice of when is that it's not done in isolation. The author of Psalm 42 was not writing a private journal session, although those have merit as well, they were writing this cry of grief for their community to put words to this collective unsettling and anger and frustration. And in doing so, they're verbalizing their pain to others. They're recognizing that though it seems God has left them, their community hasn't. And when we ask the question of when, we also verbalize our pain to others. We creak the door open just the tiniest bit to let that person in, and hope just usually tends to follow. Telling someone about our suffering does not make it go away, even though wish that it would, but somehow it makes it just that much easier to bear. When we ask the question of when to somebody we know and love and trust, we're not so much asking for an answer as we are for a witness. I have a few people in my life who are on speed dial when the autumn of life, when the darkness of the soul, when depression starts to creep back in. These are people I trust with all of me. And still, it's so hard to be honest. I would much rather get to the end of autumn, 
you know, get through winter, get to spring. And I'm like, I'm good. Almost died. Got super dark. I'm good now. Don't worry about me. That's what I would like to do. But it turns out the question of when was made for the autumn. It was made for the darkness, not for the springs. And so, despite my greatest resistance, I reach out to these trusted people when I need an external voice to remind me that it's not always going to be this way. I need them to hold on to stubborn hope until I have the strength to grab it again. The friends I trust in my spiritual autumns are the people who know that the question of when only has one honest answer. Too long. When is this going to be over? How long am I going to be in this suffering? Too long. It's the only way that we know to be honest. It's the only way we know not to minimize somebody else's pain. Because bearing this level of pain that's described in the Psalms, that's described in seasons of depression and so many other different times of life, the only answer you can give is that it's too long to have to bear it. Any amount of time when your loved one is sick is too long. When you have mouths to feed and no means to get food, when another natural disaster strikes and demolishes a hue, a whole community, when war is waged by a selfish few and thousands pray, pay the brunt. The only unit of measurement for this kind of human suffering is too long. It's too long because we have this sense that mm, this is not how it should be. We have this sense that things could and should be better in this world that we live in. No one deserves to live in this kind of sustained heartbreak that the psalmist describes and that we echo in our own spiritual autumns. I see this reflected in this community that we have here. We are a people who really are convicted that things can be better, that human flourishing for everybody is possible and we're working to bring it here. So when we hear the question of when, the cries of grief, we as a community respond with too long. We try to hold space for the pain. We try to bear witness and not fix and not silver linings it and not make promises that we can't give, but just to be there. We pay attention and we don't turn away. As people who are attempting to form their lives around this law of love, We listen and we answer too long when the world cries out, when. And just as important, we act. Because there's a certain element to a spiritual autumn that's pretty inescapable as a human person, which I really don't like. I often try to escape this whole humanity thing. I would love to be a robot. It honestly would be preferable. You just can like keep going and keep going and all the things. But turns out being human is in fact a chronic condition. And so in that, we're always gonna have pain. We're always going to have darkness to some degree. We're always going to have a spiritual autumn. And at the same time, there is this reality in the world as it is set up now that requires that certain groups of people experience way more than their fair share of suffering and harm and pain. We live in a world where systems privilege money and convenience over human flourishing And there's many people who bear the brunt of this in injustice and pain and suffering. And we hear them cry out when, and we know that there's something that we can do about it. We know that it doesn't have to be this way. 
Glennon Doyle, one of my favorite, well, actually my very favorite author and teacher, she describes how for many years, once she kind of woke up to the world and the injustice of it all, she spent her effort pulling people out of the river. She's like, people are drowning. Hello, let's, okay, we got to get them out, get them on dry land. How can we help them out? And then after really giving that her all, she's like, people keep being in the river. What's going on? So she looks upstream. She realizes that there's folks pushing them in. And she's like, oh, Okay, so we're going to keep pulling people out of the river. We're going to make that work, and we're going to answer the question of when with too long. Then we're going to go up there, and we're going to figure out how to stop letting people get pushed into the river. It's a both and. It is the caring for the folks that are drowning, and it is the reckoning of the systems that are freaking pushing them in all the time. In the terms of what we're talking about this morning, it means holding space for hope, holding space for the question of when, and working to change and disrupt the systems that explicitly cause certain groups disproportionately more autumns than they deserve. As I begin to wrap up here, I want to share a story of how this practice actually came into my life in a very real way this last week. I promise I'm not just making this up for a sermon anecdote. It's actually, this really happened. So I was talking with a friend and we were just chit-chatting and then all of a sudden something happened and she had some like latent trauma that was just triggered in the moment, which I think a lot of us have either been there or we've witnessed it. And all of a sudden she is being overtaken by an anxiety attack. And I'm just standing there witnessing her pain, pretty helpless to do anything about it. And she's crying and crying, and then she's apologizing for crying because of course she is. And then she began to ask when with the desperation that honestly echoes Psalm 42. And she was saying, how long will I react like this unexpectedly? How long will this pain feel like an open nerve? How long will my trauma catch me off guard? And I didn't know how to answer her questions. How could I know? But... I offered the only answer that seemed suitable. I said, too long. Any time that you have to feel like this is too long. And she looked at me and she went, yeah, you're right. It is too long. And she kept crying and she kept working through her anxiety. But in that moment, I realized part of the point of asking a question with no answer is because it breeds connection. It breeds just a sip of air when you're drowning in that river. And though I could not give her a timeline for when her grief would be over, nor could I go back in time and right the wrongs that caused this trauma in the moment, I could bear witness. I could listen to her unanswerable question, and I could say, too long. And it turns out that's not nothing. The asking of the question and the bearing witness to it is the spiritual practice of when. It's the first spiritual practice of autumn asking it to God and those we love and trust gives us just a sliver of comfort knowing we're not alone in this untenable pain. We bear our own spiritual autumns and that of the collective by asking this question. We hold space for the pain when nothing can be done and we move to action and advocacy when there's pain that need not be. We trudge through autumn knowing all seasons must end, even when we don't know when. To close, I'm going to read a poem by Mary Oliver because I refuse to get up here and have the mic and not read a poem by Mary Oliver. And so as I'm reading it, um, 
I bring you this poem this morning because to me, it reminds me of spiritual autumns. It reminds me that they're inevitable. It reminds me that sometimes survival is the greatest victory and the only goal. This poem feels aligned with the practice of asking when and navigating that dialectic between waiting and holding space and acting. So as I invite the band to come back up, I invite you to close or soften your eyes and listen to the poem, The Journey by Mary Oliver. One day, you finally knew what to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, you left their voices behind. The stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Mm -hmm.